0: This morning, we are beginning a series on the fourth gospel, the Gospel of John. The four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they are given to us by God, contain the history of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're familiar with the four gospels, they don't all go about their task in the same way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, in many respects, similar to one another, and in them, is found the history of many of the same incidents. And so if you read Matthew and Mark especially, you'll, you'll see that there is a lot of overlap in them. And on account of the similarities of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are often referred to as the synoptic Gospels, meaning that they, they take the same view of things. They take the same view in recounting the events in the life of Jesus. The Gospel of John, however, takes largely a different approach. It begins in a different place, often covers different events, and yet ends up coming to the same conclusion. that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Son of Man, that He was foretold by the prophets and came into the world to do the will of the Father and redeem fallen and wicked men and women by His death on the cross and then rise from the grave three days later. Writing in the fourth century, Cyril of Alexandria said of the four gospel writers that they appeared to him to resemble people who were ordered to come together to the same city, but they didn't all come to care they, they didn't all come to that same city by the same road. They they got to the same city, but they were they were traveling different ground in order to get there. John, it seems, composed his gospel last of the four. He seems to be writing late in the first century, possibly in part to counter some false teaching that was beginning to crop up already then, false teaching of the sort that was explicitly rejecting the deity of Christ. But broadly, though, his purpose of writing this gospel is found near the end of the book, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says, Therefore, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's his purpose. That's why he wrote, and that's why we have this book. So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is actually more than a man. He's God in the flesh. He is the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah. John wrote, so that we might have life in the name of Jesus Christ by trusting in Him. So let's begin then, looking at this gospel. And by God's grace, may we use the truths that are recorded here for their intended purpose. That we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in His name. So let's look this morning at the first five verses of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life." And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So most of our time this morning will be spent just unpacking what these verses tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end, briefly, we will circle around and try to think about what we ought to do in light of these truths about Christ. There is much in these verses concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. We learn here of his eternal existence, that he's been eternally with God, and at the same time that he is God. We learn that he is the creator of all that exists, that in him was life and that light was the light of men. The truths here contain deeper waters than any of us can fully grasp. But nevertheless, let us observe the truths which are taught to us here and seek to understand them as well as we can And believe what is affirmed, even if we cannot understand. Augustine put it well when he said, Let each one take in what he can, and to what extent he can. And he who is not able to take in any of it, let him nourish his heart so that he may be able. Let him nourish it with milk so that he may come to strong meat. Let him not leave Christ born through the flesh till he arrive at Christ born of the Father, the God word with God through whom all things were made. For that is life, which in him is the light of men. So this gospel begins with those words, in the beginning. It takes our minds back to the dawn of time in a manner reminiscent of Genesis 1-1 that we heard earlier this morning. In the beginning, what? We know from Genesis that God created in the beginning. He created the heavens and the earth. But here in John chapter 1, we learn first not about the world, but about God himself. What do we learn? That in the beginning was the Word. It doesn't say in the beginning the Word was created, or in the beginning the Word came into being, or anything of that nature. Rather, he said in the beginning was the Word. The Word was already there in the beginning. When the beginning was just beginning, the Word already was. To, To express it differently, the Word is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So notice here what John does with these words. This eternal word of whom he had just spoken is at one and the same time identified as being with God and identified as being God. There is then a distinction between God and the word in that the word was with God and yet at the same time the word was God. The word is clearly identified as being God. Now how can that be? This is because of the unity and plurality within the Godhead. The unity of the Godhead was clear to the Jews of old from that well-known passage they referred to as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. And he says of himself in Isaiah 43.10, Before me there was no God formed, nor will there be none after me. There is but one God, and he is one. But yet within the Godhead, there is also a plurality. How else could it be when we read things like what we find in Psalm 45, 6 and 7? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Notice what the psalmist is doing there in Psalm 45. He addresses God... And exclaims that his throne is forever and ever. And then the psalmist goes on to say that God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. This is because within the unity of the Godhead, there is also a plurality. God is one in essence, and yet in that divine essence are three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And how else could it be when we read things like what we find in Psalm 2? Psalm 2. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is speaking of God's eternally begotten Son, who is the anointed King, the judge of the wicked, and the Savior of those who take refuge in Him. Again, God is one in essence, one in being, and yet within the divine essence are three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, how could it be otherwise when we read things like what we find in Psalm 110, verse 1? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This Messiah would be the son of David according to the flesh when he came into the world, he is also the Lord He would sit at the right hand of the Father. And it is significant, I think, that in the Jewish Targum, which was an Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament, that it says in Psalm 110, the Lord said in his word, or perhaps the Lord said to his word. And indeed, this was apparently common in the Targum and in the rabbinical writings for the Messiah to be spoken of. As the Word. And this seems to be the background for why John is referring to the eternal Son of God here as the Word. And so it is that John here speaks of the Word who was with God and was God in the beginning. The Son of God is the one through whom the Father speaks, even as we read earlier in Hebrews chapter one, verse two, that in these last days he has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things. He, the Son, is the one who interprets and explains God the Father to us, even as we find later on here in John chapter 1, verse 18, that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that is, the Son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And this truth is, is borne out further in that exchange that takes place between Jesus and Philip in John 14, where Jesus says, If you had known me, you would know my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And thus the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is of one essence with the Father. And in that sense is one with the Father. The Father is God and the Son is God. And yet there is an important distinction between the two. In that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. The Son, rather, as we read in Hebrews 1.3, is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of His nature. This is Jesus our Lord, the eternal word of God, who is God and thus is one with the Father as to the unity of the divine essence, and yet at the same time is distinct from the Father such that he can be said to be with God and the one who has explained God the Father to us. Commenting on the unity of essence within the Godhead and yet the distinction of persons, Bernard of Clairvaux said that, it is rashness to search too far into it. It is piety to believe it. It is life eternal to know it. And we can never have a full comprehension of it till we come to enjoy it. And now, while we're here considering John 1.1, 1, 1, as an aside, I think it is appropriate to address the way in which the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses assail the deity of Christ, which is so clearly taught in this verse. The verse proclaims the deity of Christ, and this is one of the key passages in regard to the deity of Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses argue that this verse does not teach the deity of Christ, and their argument rests on the presence or absence of the Greek definite article. And so they'll point out, as is the case, that in John 1, 1, in the Greek, before the word for God in the middle uh, phrase of the verse, uh, there is the uh, there's the presence of the article and then before the last word for God in the verse there is uh, the absence of the article. And so when it says the word was with God, it's more literally the word was with the God. And then at the end of the verse there's, there's no, no word for the when it says the word was God. And so what the Jehovah's Witnesses will say and what their translation says is that the word was A God. And so what they go on to argue then is that the word is not eternal but is a created being, a lesser God, if you will, but not truly and properly God in the sense that God the Father is God. And so the absence of the definite article before the word for God at the end of the verse is the basis upon which they seek to overturn what John is here saying. And so what answer can we give in return? We can simply say that this is not the way the Greek language works. The presence or absence of the definite article doesn't work that way, determining whether the true God is meant or some lesser deity is asserted. And there are examples of that even here in John chapter one, where God the Father is clearly meant, in verse six and verse 13 and verse 18, and yet there is no definite article in the Greek. And if they lay such weight upon the presence or absence of the definite article, it might be worth asking what they would do with Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where the psalmist is quoting from Psalm 45, where it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then he goes on, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. And in both cases, the definite article is before the word God. Your throne, O God has the definite article where it's talking about the Son, and then God, your God, has the definite article as well. Now, all of that may be a little bit more technical than is usually warranted in the sermon, but it's probably worth considering in that this verse is assailed in this way on the door-to-door level. And we need to know that this is false, these claims that they are making, that Christ really is God, that John really means what he says here in verse 1. And to get beyond the haggling over the presence or absence of a Greek definite article, we do well to point out that the scriptures more broadly, both Old Testament and New Testament, announce that the Messiah is God. Isaiah 9.6, for instance, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called, wonderful counselor, mighty God. He's called the mighty God because he is the mighty God. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, where the righteous branch of David, the messianic figure who is coming, will be known by the name the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness. Or we could consider also that remarkable passage later on here in the Gospel of John, John 5, 18 and following, where the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus because he is calling God his own father. And the way they understand that, This guy is claiming God is his father. That means he's making himself equal with God. Now this would have been the picture perfect moment for Jesus to backpedal. If he was like, whoa, 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 whoa! hey, you guys misunderstood me. That's not what I'm trying to say. This would have been the perfect place for John to backpedal. If he's like, whoa, 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 this is not what I'm trying to say, that Jesus is making himself equal with God. But what Jesus says and John records for us is, is that this is exactly what Jesus meant, that he is equal with God. And the passage goes on uh, there in John 5 to, to demonstrate this. And this is so much so that Jesus says in John 5, and 23, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son as they honor the Father. You honor the Son just like you honor the Father. This is because the Son is God. And this is the God who does not give his glory to another. And yet Jesus Christ says that judgment has been given to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Now more could be said here about this, but we'll move on. John is clearly proclaiming the deity of the Word who is the Son of God. The Word was God and this Word was in the beginning with God. And being God, being with God the Father, he is also said to be the creator as we find there in verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Nothing has existence except that it was made by Christ. All created things came into being through Jesus Christ, And isn't that what Paul says in Colossians 1.16? That by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Isn't that what the writer to the Hebrews affirmed in Hebrews 1? That God in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The eternal word, the Son of God is the creator of the world along with God the Father. The universe was created through the Son of God and for the Son of God. He is, after all, the heir of all things. The nations are his inheritance. It's all for him. It's all for his glory. He's the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the ruler of all that is. The heavens proclaim his excellency. The mountains, the rivers, the forests, the plains, the fields... All proclaim his glory, and they are all his because he made them. The Son is the creator, just as the Father is the creator. And so Jesus himself says in John 5, 19, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Father and Son are one and are thus united in his working. And and this applies to creation, it applies to providence, it applies to redemption. The Father and the Son are united in their working, and this includes the Holy Spirit as well. And so in Genesis one, what do we find? We find that the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters in the creation of the world. So this word is eternal, he is distinct from God the Father, yet he is God. The Word is creator. We find there in verse four that in him was life. He possessed life. Indeed, John records for us the words of Christ later on in this gospel. Wonderful words. John eleven twenty five, 25, where he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In him was life. Christ is life. Now what, though, actually is life? a little bit tricky to define, isn't it? I think we can say that life is an an animating principle. Life distinguishes that which is living from that which is dead. It distinguishes that which is living from that which never was alive. It's been observed that there is nothing more intimate and essential to anything than its life. Now, First and foremost, God has life. He is the living God. And so Jeremiah 10.10, 10, we read this. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Likewise, Paul says to the Thessalonians that they had turned from idols to serve the living God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. God has life. He is life. Now we have life as people, but we have it in a different way than God does. We derive our life from God. God has life in himself. God is the great I am, completely independent in himself. He is self-existent. We, on the other hand, are not self-existent. We are dependent for our existence. What life we have, be it natural, physical life, or be it spiritual life, whatever life we have is derived from God and we receive it as a gift from him. So John says, in him, in the eternal word, son of God, was life. And this is fleshed out for us in the words of John five twenty six, where Jesus says, As the Father has life in himself, even so he is given to the Son to have life in himself. I think this statement has been helpfully explained by John Pearson where he pointed out that, that they both have the same life, they both have it in themselves, both in the same degree, as the one, so the other, but only with this difference. The Father gives it, and the Son receives it. The Father has life in himself. The Son has life in himself. The Son has been granted this by the Father. In the eternal generation of the person of the Son, the Father communicated his whole divine essence to the person of the Son who was begotten from eternity. The Dutch theologian Herman Vitzius commented on this by saying that it is such a communication of the divine living and life-giving essence that The Son has this essence, not as by chance or or recent or dependent upon another, but He has this life in Himself. And then He goes on to say that this is the foundation of the power which He has as a mediator to impart life to dead sinners. This is a spiritual and 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 give to, to to sinners a spiritual and holy life in this world as well as eternal life in the world to come. Christ is life and gives life. In him was life. He is the life. He has life in himself. He's the author of life, the sustainer of life, and the restorer of life. This applies to both spiritual life and natural life. And John tells us here that the life was the light of men. Now this phrase is is difficult, but it seems in my estimation to be pointing to the relationship between the self-existent life which was in the eternal word, which was in the eternal Son of God, and the the rational knowledge and understanding of mankind. When God created Adam in the garden, he created Adam in the image of God. So we're told in Genesis 2-7 how the Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Adam was in the image of God, and in paradise he was possessed uh, of original righteousness. He was made upright, in the words of Ecclesiastes 7.29. And included in this, in this image of God, in this righteousness and uprightness with which he was made, was a certain light, a light of the, the knowledge of God, an appropriate rationality, and so forth. But this knowledge, this rationality, was, was losable. And Adam lost what he had. He lost this light by... His sin, the light of knowledge, was largely sacrificed. The image of God wasn't lost, but the image of God was badly damaged and defaced. And so is it any wonder that we, when we read in Scripture of the descent of mankind into wickedness, we see it described in terms of darkness and in terms of being cut off from life. And so, for instance, Romans 121, "...for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks." But they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Likewise, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. So I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. When we read about mankind descending into wickedness. So often it's described in terms of darkness and of being cut off from life. In giving life to man, the eternal word gave light to man. But in sin, mankind turned away from the life of God and correspondingly, as their spiritual life was lost, their light of understanding also grew dim. But in Christ, was life. And in And the life was the light of men. But in our sin we exchanged light for darkness. And if then the light within us is darkness, how great is that darkness. But thanks be to God that life remains in the word. And that that life still is the light of man. Even though we exchange light for the darkness. The life and the light in Christ always and ever remain what they were. So we read in verse 5 that this light is still shining. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not comprehended it. In other words, even though darkness took root in the lives of men and women because they rejected the light of God, nevertheless the light of the word of God still shined on. And So we find in Acts 14, 17 that God did not leave himself without a witness in the world. The light still shined. As we find in Romans 1.20, that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. The light continued to shine, even when the darkness reigned. But what was the result? The light was shining, darkness was reigning. The close of the verse tells us that the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, if you're using the... English Standard Version translation, you'll have the translation of uh, the word overcome. The darkness did not overcome it. The, dark, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now both, both translations are valid as the, the word that's used there has a large semantic domain and can be translated as win, attain, catch up, seize, overtake, grasp, find, understand. So it's, it's got a, a wide range. And both Both translations are true in themselves. It's certainly true that darkness did not overcome the light of the eternal word. But it's also true that by and large, mankind in the darkness did not comprehend, did not understand the light that was shining. They did not understand it and would not submit themselves to it. That translation, the darkness, has not comprehended it, is the more traditional rendering of the phrase and seems to fit better contextually, I think, as it seems parallel to what is found below in verse 10 and verse 11. verse 10, the world did not know him. Verse 11, those who were his own did not receive him. And so I would lean toward the translation of it being the darkness has not comprehended it, but both are certainly true. The point seems to be that even before his incarnation, the light of the eternal word was shining in the darkness the dark world, even before he was born into the world. But by and large, the darkness did not understand the light that was shining. Mankind had rejected the natural revelation of God, which was in the world, and often even rejected the special revelation of God in the world as he revealed himself to the prophets in the Old Testament time. Now, in these opening five verses... John has told us about the pre-incarnate existence, the eternal existence of the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, who is the Word. He tells us that this Word is eternal, that He is God, that He is distinct from God the Father, that He's the Creator of all that has been made, that He has life and that He has it such that He is the one who gives light to men. But it also hints that since the fall... Mankind has been walking in darkness and that darkness has not understood the light which the word continued to shine into the darkness. The world was in darkness and it turned its back on God, turned its back on the Son of God. This was where things stood prior to Christ's coming into the world. The eternal Son of God who was with God and was God and thus deserving of all worship and praise and honor and obedience. This eternal word to Together with the Father and the Holy Spirit had created the world. The Son was the one for whom and through whom all things were created. This word had life in himself, the very life of God. That life was the light of men. And God had created mankind in his image. Adam and Eve were created upright. They knew God and their hearts were enlightened in the knowledge of him in the garden. But despite such privileges... Eve was persuaded by Satan. She was missing out on something. and So she ate of the forbidden fruit and Adam followed her with eyes wide open. And as a result, it plunged the human race into destruction, into darkness. Symbolically, we see that Adam and Eve were cut off from the tree of life in the garden. They cut off from, from eating the fruit of eternal life. And that means that they are cut off from spiritual life, the cast out of the garden. God had said to them that on the day they ate of the fruit, they would surely die. They continued to live on physically, but they died spiritually that day. And thus, the minds of mankind grew dark, and even then the light was still shining in the darkness. But nevertheless, they didn't understand it. They didn't comprehend it. Is not this a recipe for judgment? ungrateful, unholy, stubborn, stiff-necked people had all turned their backs on God and lived in darkness in the world and loved that darkness. Who among them, who among us, does not deserve to be judged and judged eternally for turning away from God like that? It would have been perfectly just and righteous for God to condemn such wretches eternally and send the entire world to hell. That would have been perfectly just for God to have done that. Thank God that's not what happened the book of john tells us that in fact something radically different has happened this eternal word who created everything who made us who we are and against whom we have rebelled this eternal word this light this son of god equal to the father instead of condemning us has come into the world so as to save us and by believing in him we have life in his name now the day of judgment is coming Christ will one day judge the living and the dead. But now we live in an age of grace by which we might be spared from the wrath that is to come. And this is good news for all. And so what these verses mean is that we need to recognize Jesus for who He is as the eternal Son of God. Recognize just what He did when He came into the world, when the Word became flesh, When God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law. So let's turn away from our sins and believe upon Christ. Let's honor Him as our Creator and as our Redeemer. Let's turn away from wickedness and walk with Him in obedience and true repentance. And let's praise God that this eternal Word is He who became flesh for us and for our salvation. All praise and glory be to our great and gracious God who has not left us in darkness but sent the light into the world for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for Jesus Christ that he is true and eternal God and yet he became man for us for our salvation was born into the world and lived so that we might have eternal life died and rose again so that we might have eternal life and eternal righteousness before you. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that are full of love and praise to Christ. Give us sincerity in our hearts that we would walk before him as our creator and our ruler and our king from day to day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.